This is The Neutral Position, hosted by Nick Palmashano, Bringing honesty and reason back into conversation. Here's your host, Nick Palmashano. I want to take a quick moment to thank one of our sponsors. When the founders of Ugly Chews reached out to sponsor the program and I looked at their website and saw the Chews, I have to tell you, I thought Ugly Chews were appropriately named. They're very ugly and your dog chews on them. Nailed it. Then the samples arrived and I realized they are not named correctly. They are far, far uglier than the word ugly lets on. They're hairy. They're not artificially colored. They're gross. But you know who didn't find them gross? My athletic body with a dumb face that won't let him breathe, Boston Terror. Rufus. Rufus can't get enough of them. Instead of sitting around slobbering and struggling to breathe, he sits around slobbering on an ugly chew while he struggles to breathe. He loves the damn things. These uglier than ugly chews are healthy. There are no artificial ingredients. There are no chemicals. It's just disgusting, horrific nature wrapped up in an ugly sun-dried chew. And in addition to being good for your dog's digestion, these things don't fall apart and get soggy like rawhide. I hate to say it because they're so damn ugly, but they're the best thing to happen to dogs since man let wolves get close to the fire and domesticated them. And if you're not happy with them, Ugly Chews gives you your money back. So if you want to make your dog happy and healthy, go to UglyChews.com. That's right, UglyChews.com. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of The Neutral Position with Nick Palmashano. This show was started because, frankly, I feel like Great conversations have ceased happening in America. We're, we're given a couple of positions that we're supposed to argue with each other over, but we never actually sit down and have nuanced conversation the way we did when I was growing up. So the whole idea here is that we sit down, we talk, and we try to see a little bit of each other's perspective. Today, my guest is Chris Cathers. A, he was a former operator, Green Beret, and then CIA, GRS, went on to become a badass businessman uh, as a turnaround specialist. And then life kind of took a turn. Uh, we're here to talk about that and a whole bunch of other stuff. So Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. And if you could introduce yourself a little bit, because I probably screwed up at least 70% of it. <laughs> well, thanks for having me. And uh, I definitely appreciate you having me on the podcast. Um, I think he pretty much summed it up well. I mean, to be honest with you, um, do you want me to talk a little bit about like where I grew up or that kind of thing? What, or? Do, you, what do you want to tell me? Tell me everything. <sighs> wow. Where to start? That's a great question. Um, well, I grew up uh, in the Northeast. I'm a reformed Yankee. And uh, when you say Yankee, I need to be more specific. Are we talking like a real American New Englander? Or are we talking New York? Philadelphia. Philadelphia. All right. So, okay. All right. You know, okay. Rocky. So, so you, know, you, you like liberty. hundred percent. You're not like 100%. those. You're not like those New Yorkers that were really more like, you know, on the side of the Brits during the Revolutionary War. Didn't nah. really. Okay. Okay. We're, we're aligned. Then. But I've been we're in aligned. the South most of my adult life. So okay. when I joined the military, I moved down south. But, you know, that was my formative years when I was in high school. I spent it all up in, in Philadelphia in the Northeast. And then afterwards, I just <clears throat> traveled, the, you know, traveled the world, you know, especially within the military. Spent many years overseas, um, which kind of broadened my perspective of and my appreciation for the country, you know, and uh, just just how good we have it, you know, overall. Yeah. Why, why Green Beret? Well, I was a little bit of a little bit of a troublemaker growing up. And, um, you know, my, my father was in law enforcement. He was in the military back in 60 to 64. So 
early days, he volunteered right when Vietnam era was mm -hmm. kicking off. And luckily he didn't have to go overseas. And um, he raised me predominantly by myself, but I have uh, two, two brothers and a sister. And we all got kind of got split up at the time, you know, growing up from divorce when I was six. But my dad raised me and he kind of put up with me for a long time and um, had a lot of impact. You know, his military uh, service kind of was one one thing, but I, I just wanted to get a challenge. You know, I yeah. was a good athlete growing up. I wasn't academically inclined. I just didn't stick. And ultimately, I was like, well, my dad gave me three options. He's like, join the military, go get a job. Or go to college and pay for it yourself because you're, you know, your uh, academics aren't where they need to be. I was, to be know? honest, I was hoping the third option was <laughs> going to be something weird like, or follow your passion for dance. You know, yeah, nope, but no, no dance, <laughs> no passion. dance in my, there's no dance in my future. So, so you so, said military. Now, yeah. were you an X-ray or did you do it the old-fashioned way? No, this is pre. Um, so I went in. I joined the military in '92, right after high school. So you're old like me. A hundred percent. So I went through the last hard class, you know, yep. of everything. Yeah. And last, yeah. Back, back to the dinosaurs. Yeah. hundred percent. See, we're aligned. We're aligned. So what did you do before you were a Green Beret? Um, so ironically, I was the, uh, I like to tell that was my, I got screwed by a recruiter story. They saw me coming a million miles away. So when my dad gave me the ultimatum, I went down the MEPS, like literally yep. that week. And I joined for six years. I said, I want to be an airborne ranger. And this is pre-internet, right? Yeah. So I didn't have the resource that all the people have now, Google search, watching documentaries, all that kind of stuff. So I told them I want to be an airborne ranger. And what, I saw, did, what did they really make you? I became a 68 x-ray. So okay. I went into right. aviation, the furthest that could thing be worse, away. Could, that could be worse though. You weren't- I don't like, know. You weren't <laughs> fueling anything. <laughs> no, I was working on, we, we were actually, I was a uh, 68 x-ray, which is a, uh, it's armament system repair. So we worked on electrical systems and we actually loaded Apache helicopters. So it didn't really set me up for success when I went to selection. Cause quickly I was like, I want to go to ranger school. They're like, you can't, you're not non-combat MOS. So I was like, but the recruiters told me, but they, but they, they said, said I was good. And they were like, no, you're not good. And um, you can go the SF route. So I did. And uh, I flew from Germany. I was stationed in Germany at the time. And all they told me at the time was like, hey, man, all you got to do is not quit. I'm like, all right, I'm good at that. And um, I went through Selection 95, made it my first, you know, first pass. Went to Airborne School and got assigned to my unit. And, so uh, that was fast. Yeah, I was young. I, I was mean, super you were young. super young. I'm surprised. It was like, an E4. Yeah, because usually it's back then, back in those days, it was E6. So I was, I was, yeah. I had the, the odds stacked against me, to be honest. I came from a soft skill MOS coupled with... The fact that, um, <clears throat> well, shoot, I don't even lost my train of thought on that. <laughs> um, yeah, I just didn't have a lot going for me at that time. You know, all the other guys had a lot of experience. They came from Ranger Battalion and all mm -hmm. the, you know, I'm looking around. I see uh, like all these dudes that have been through a lot of schooling and they're 11 Bravos. And they hand me a Ranger handbook the first time. And I'm like, what's this? <laughs> so I had a lot of catching up to do, but luckily physically I had a lot of things going for me. My mindset was a big attribute. So that, awesome. that, that got me through a lot of it. So you go straight through? Yeah. Went straight through. And, and what was your, uh, what was your specialty on the team? I was an 18 Bravo. So I was okay, a weapon, so you were a weapon sergeant. Yeah. So you were I was the, a nug. You were the meathead. <laughs> you were the meathead of the team. That's awesome, man. That's great. Well, I think, I think it goes back to, um, you know, when I, when I went through 
you know, the, the, uh, the whole process, they, uh, I didn't have a lot of options. You know, I was like, I want to be a medic. Yeah, of course. That sounds cool. Thank God I wasn't a medic. I was too, you know, at the time I just wasn't, I would have had problems, but I yeah. did have problems in the Q course. I did fail several times in the sense of like, I got recycled for uh, land navigation because I didn't have any background. So what I ended up doing is just running point to point in the star course. So I probably covered like, you know, when normal people cover maybe 20 miles, I probably covered like triple the diff distance because yeah. I just ran. Yeah. So I just try to make it up with like, you know, with meat whatever I had. Yeah. Meat Meatheadedness. Yeah. 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 When in doubt, just like <laughs> push it harder. Exactly. <laughs> the door won't open. Have you tried smashing your body into it until you're unconscious? <laughs> I got it. So that life, you know, you're successful in the military. You end up in you know, working for the agency and GRS. What made you decide to get out? to like walk away from the government entirely? No, it's a good question. Um, the main reason was when I went into SF, it was the op tempo at the time. Mm -hmm. So I did two deployments with, with SF, that was it. And, you know, I did have an encounter on my, I think it was my second one in 99. I, I, we ended up getting an ambush, you know, which was pretty rare at the time. Yep. But, you know, we were doing a lot of foreign internal defense, FID missions, I was doing counter poaching, demining. And I was like, look, man, I want to, I want to do the next level. So I had two options it was either going the, uh, to the unit and try out there and see if I could make the selection process or, and I was already at my second reenlistment. It was like, or get out and, uh, try some, pursue something different. For, for those of you that don't know, um, the unit is what is typically referred to as Delta force or CAG uh, combat applications group, but, uh, you know, for you non-military folks listening or watching, um, he's talking about the highest echelon of special operations. But that ultimately pushed me. I was like, look, my, you know, I had a couple conversations, especially with my team, sir, and he was a really good dude. And he was, we had a candid conversation. I said, look, man, like I can either go that route, you know, I can go try out for the unit because the op tempo is not what, you know, this is why I came in. I didn't want to just be, you know, training is one of the first things that you do as a force multiplier. But, you know, I, I was on my second reenlistment, put me over 10 years. So I was like, look, I, I think I'm going to consider getting out. And he's like, yeah, um, I understand. So he supported it. Then I went to PA school because they told me I couldn't be a medic primarily. You know, I was like, let me try this. <laughs> so, so basically people telling you you can't do something is one of your primary motivators. Mm. Okay. It's All a little right. incentive, Got you know. It. Got it. Okay, so you go to PA school. <laughs> yeah, and while I was in PA, PA school, that's when 9-11 occurred. So I got out in uh, September, I think it was September 99, was in school, did community college, and I got uh, accepted to a university. How I got accepted, I have no idea. I guess it was my life skills. And it was a very rigorous program. I was in biology pre-PA pre or physician assistant. And when 9-11 occurred, it just everything shifted, you know, yeah. I yeah. quickly tried to get back on the team. And then I had a buddy, my buddy, um, my buddy, Ron ended up calling me up. We went through selection together and he was doing some things overseas. He was like, Hey man, they're recruiting for GRS. You got any interest? And I was like, hell yeah. So that's when I started the vetting prop process SF 86 and going through background check. And that kind of led me to, uh, my first deployment was in 2003 
in Iraq. Uh, so we were right after the invasion, we, we, we uh, infilled into Baghdad. And that was kind of what was my next chapter, yeah. essentially in my life, you know. So that brings me to the most important question uh, associated with the CIA. How accurate is Jason Bourne? <laughs> so we protected Jason Bourne. <laughs> so well, he's super accurate. <laughs> he's super badass. <laughs> so we were there to protect Jason Bourne. If on a scale of like <laughs> one to Jason Bourne, where is your skill set? Oh, man. See, I'm, I'm self-deprecating, so I'm going to say a one. But, you know, I want to say a <laughs> ten because it makes me seem cool. But... Uh, yeah, it was it was super interesting, man. Like it was kind of the wild west at the time. And the, what I really loved about it was in 2003 in Iraq, it was kind of a new thing. Like yeah. it yeah. was there was no rules. It was kind of like just get the fucking job done at the end of the day, keep your principles alive and do what you got to do. And there wasn't a lot of administrative paperwork and things like that. If there was an incident, an ambush, you know, have to do an incident report, but uh, then you just go on your next day, like no big deal. So it was kind of freeing, you know, it was very, um, it was a kind of freeing time where I got to do the things that I wanted to do in, in, in special operations, but I, I had the opportunity to kind of be like a plank owner for GRS because they hadn't done this in a long time, mm -hmm. you know, use, uh, especially contractors in, uh, uh, in combat. So first 30 dudes. Did you enjoy it more or less than being a Green Beret? I think honestly uh, more, um, and it's not a fair assessment because I didn't serve a long time with sure. the ODAs. Yeah, yeah, of course. And so the guys that have been longer, it, you know, there's no comparison. But from my perspective, only being, you know, I did two deployments. Some guys, most of my friends have done 25 years. So it's kind of like it's not a fair yeah, yeah. kind of assessment. But I enjoyed a lot more because the freedom. You know, we're on yep. the roads every day, kind of in the thick of it all the time and you had to rely on the guys on the right and left of you and we had to kind of essentially just you know our main main objective was keeping our principles safe yeah like so we were kind of for all intents and purposes expendable in the sense of something went down we all knew that and we accepted that responsibility and it, it was great you know so i won't ask you anything about your secret squirrel stuff because i know you know the CIA hates it when people talk about stuff. But I will say, um, in terms of culture, right, which culture did you prefer? Because I, I, I have a lot of friends in, that are still in both worlds, and uh, there's pros and cons of both. But, like, you know, um, you know, in the military, everyone has each other's backs. In the agency... It's not always the case, but how was it for you in GRS? Yeah, that's a fair question. So like, I don't, like if I did 20 years in group or in SF as a Green Beret, I think it'd be easier kind of assessment. For, for me, I definitely preferred my time with the agency. Pro, and some of those reasons to your point was like, I'm still friends with those guys. We meshed like, I still keep up with almost all the guys because it's a very small number of people. Mm -hmm. And SF's fairly small number of people, but it was a unique circumstance at the time. You know, we shared, so if I went if I went to combat with group, I probably have a whole different sure. dynamic. I just didn't. Like I got into some, a couple situations and shootouts with, with on just the two trips that I did, but they were just happenstance. They weren't, 
uh, you didn't know they, you were there were be casual shootouts right it was casual. like there was more you know, like you're just driving like I'm, oh, I'm having like I'm just having a little espresso <laughs> oh. it actually was like you excuse know, me there William I, was, I believe that gentleman over there is shooting at us <laughs> this is very casual <laughs> sorry literally yeah. like it's just driving down the road and then boom and then so but these other ones were like you knew every day you're going out you're at a higher threat posture you knew that that those situations was highly likely that something was going to happen at some point in time. So before we before we leave your background, which is crazy and interesting, what is the craziest story that you can tell us that has happened to you in either world? I've got a weird. And by crazy, it doesn't have to be like the most dangerous, but like I I like to think of crazy as the most ridiculous. Like people won't believe it's real story. So what's your what's your best that you can share legally? Well, without Jason Bourne showing up. Yeah, I mean, it was funny because the one in SF was kind of like I've been in, I've been IED several times and that been blows. in shoot up that literally does blow, and that you know one of the instances I was in with the OGA that was actually pretty funny because when we got hit going 75 miles per hour on Khadijah Expressway on Route Irish, which was at the time one of the most dangerous yep. roads. We got hit, thankfully, in an armored vehicle or I wouldn't be sitting here. But, you know, when we got the initial brunt of the explosion uh, hit the vehicle, I mean, we just started doing circles, man, right? And there's a big cloud of smoke. And, you know, we're, from a training perspective, you're always taught to get out on the, the you know, the opposite side of the threat. Well, when you're spinning around at 70 miles per hour and you're in a cloud of smoke, you don't know which, which way is what. So we just get the hell out. But my buddy just starts laughing, you know. He looks at me and he's like, bah! And I'm like, is this fucking for real? Like, we just got a fucking IED and this dude's like laughing at me. He's a former Forest Recon guy that was like driving the car, my buddy John. And so there is a lot of those, man. Like a lot of the, the personalities make it all worth the while. The dudes that you're working with, it's like keeping it light, you know? And it's kind of, I think my situation in SF that I got in an ambush, that was actually pretty pretty crazy too, but that one was, it's just those personalities, man, guys laughing, you know? So, so you kick ass in SF, you kick ass in GRS, and then you decide to get out of all of it. You walk away from both of those lives and you become, of all things, a corporate turnaround specialist. Yeah, weird. Because that's the normal progression. <laughs> well, I think at that time it was like, I went through, after my ambush on Khadija Expressway, the next time I went out, I got hit again. You know, they just missed the vehicle mm -hmm. with another IED. And that yep. was like my third one within a short period of time in the same couple months. So you start questioning. Like, it wasn't me. I was, uh, my ex-wife at the time was like, hey, you're going to fucking die. <laughs> and I was like, well, I mean, this is what I'm here to, I feel like I was put on the earth to protect people, man. You know, like that's just my role. <clears throat> and I wouldn't, I wouldn't do anything different. You know, I would would do all the same things again. Um, it'd be nice if I knew the things I knew now, <laughs> but, so um, always the case, right? Yeah. My buddy, my buddy started an armor vehicle company, uh, John Michael Zinn. He was great dude. Uh, he was in third, uh, he was, um, seal team three and my buddy, um, Ron introduced me to him. He was my partner in Iraq. Mm -hmm. He started an armored, he was a entrepreneur, started indigent armor out of, uh, Stanton, California, Back in the day, I think it was around 2004 when it was official. So I invested in the company and I didn't think I was going to see my money. My buddy calls, 
they called me up and they were like, Hey man, we're, we're doing a seed. Can you help us, you know, fund this opportunity? And then I ended up when I got out, it gave me the uh, opportunity to start as a PM low level, you know, project, uh, project manager to, to, to kind of do these, um, armor vehicle builds. Yep. So I got my business degree, Lean Six Sigma courses and kind of Im immersed myself. And yeah, it was a great opportunity. I worked my way up to general manager in just four years. We sold the private equity for $35 million. And it was a, it was crazy time. We just slept in the office, which I'm sure you can appreciate, yeah, you know, being a small 100%. business to, you know, taking a small business yeah. from, from nothing to, to, to something. And um, so, yeah, it was a great opportunity. And we all had that brotherhood, you know, we just knew, and I just had that, um, that drive, you know, yeah. I just like to, I sleep in the office, you know, and just, that's all I did is just work as a workhorse. So kicking ass, Green Beret, kicking ass, GRS, kicking ass at, you know, in the private sector. And then life kicked you in the balls. Yeah. I mean, you, you had a, you had a rough time. Talk about that and, and talk about how you got there. And, and most importantly to me is like what you were feeling. So give us some insight. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think at a time in my life, I was just, I just wanted to perform, you mm -hmm. know, and I still do, you know, even coming to a podcast, I just want, I just want to be able to, I just want to be able to perform and prepare, you know, I always over prepare for things. So for and, those of you in the audience, this dude was doing power cleans before, like right before, like he brought weights here. It was weird and <laughs> was doing power cleans and like said he needed to get a party pump before the podcast. I don't know. I've never heard of that before, but he apparently knows what it is. <laughs> Do you have weights here? Wait, <laughs> <laughs> did I undermine myself? Um, yeah. So, where essentially the the kind of bottom fell out for me, like all those all those situations that I was in, like within the military, within GRS, those mm -hmm. things, I felt like I was pretty unscathed, but I did have some like anxiety issues, like when it came to work you know, initially, but I didn't really think about it. I just kind of kept, kept grinding and that kind of, I just kept my head down and kept grinding. And 2010, um, we just made the uh, sale of the company and it was fairly short after within, I, I might be wrong because I can't, my mind's not that great, but it might've been a, a week or two after my buddy, John, who, who was the CEO of our company, I was a general manager of Indigen Armor. So I had 65 employees making armored vehicles. Mm -hmm. and we had three or four businesses total, and he was overseeing all this. And he went to Jordan on a business trip. He ended up dying. He fell off a building 40 feet at Sofax um, in Jordan. And I got the call at three in the morning, and that was kind of like, it, it kind of catapulted from there, like a series of unfortunate events, as I like to call it, and um, <laughs> very unfortunate. So. Right after he passed, yeah, I got the phone call. I was like, hey, man, are you sure this is the guy? Because we all had call signs like in the past, we'd be like, hey, text died. And we had a friend text when I was in country in Iraq. And somebody called his wife and said, hey, man, I'm sorry to hear your husband passed. But it was another text with the same call sign. Right. So this stuff has happened before. So our guys on our business development team, we had guys from uh, SEAL Team 6. We had guys from the agency. And I said, hey, bro, are you, can you confirm for sure that he he's dead? And they said, yeah. 
was like, fuck. And this was like 3.30 in the morning. I knew it was mm-hmm. bad news. Yeah. And um, Yeah, nothing good happens after nothing 1 a.m. So from there, I went from like, from 3.30 in the morning at 6 a.m., I had to kind of walk up the street. He lived three doors down. We were like the, I like to say the mafia. You know, we all lived in the same neighborhood. Our CFO, um, him, John, our CEO, myself, and then we had another GM for another company that we ran. And I had to tell his wife, who was nine months pregnant with his first, or his first boy, and he had two young daughters, um, uh, Cameron and DJ, and it was like, they came to the door to answer the door and their mom came down and she just wailed, man. She just, as soon as, as soon as she saw me, I knew she knew what the deal was. And I had to go to work and go from there and put the happy face on and tell our employees, Hey man, everything's good to go. You know, we're solid. And shortly thereafter, like it's kind of a long story, but the key milestones was then, you know, my ex-wife ended up filing for divorce on the anniversary, the one year anniversary of, of his death. And, you know, so I had no friend, you know, no, plus he was a CEO. I had to go to work every day and go by his office, which I couldn't go in there for six months. It just rocked me. And we had to pick his body up at the airport and put his uh, casket. in when it came back from Jordan, and I had to open that up with his father because he wanted to get eyes on his son. Like he was a great guy. Um, his father was our corporate attorney as well, 30 years practicing. And he's a Vietnam veteran. And wow. he's like, so we're there prying his fucking casket, you know, this big box. We're prying this thing open and I'm like, fuck, he fell 40 feet, dude, this isn't gonna be good. And there's a million of these things. These are just like snippets. But so, what ended ultimately where this led to was the private equity company. And I can't get into detail because I don't want to get sued. But there was, we all had $3 million life insurance policies and we just got acquired. So they looked at this as an opportunity to take care of the shareholders because legally there was some opening there. But ethically, I knew what needed to be done. And I would just talk to the the chairman of our company at the time. And I said, hey, what are you going to do with your, uh, what are you going to do about this? And he's like, yeah, we're gonna we're looking into it, and it went on for eight months. So I had this moral injury where I worked for a company for eight months, knowing in my gut that I have a really good gauge on character where this was gonna go. So at the end of the day, went on eight months. I said, "Call New York. I can't do this anymore, man. Like I just know where this is going." And they said, "Tell his wife to sue us." So I resigned on the spot. So I resigned. My wife divorced me. My buddy was dead. His wife was. I had to be there, you know, even when she gave birth, you know, like it was just a massive, just bad ordeal. So I started hitting the bottle pretty hard and I, I got into pain pills and all these other things. I was drinking pretty much 24 seven, but then I was doing MMA and jujitsu um, to, to manage my anxiety because I started sweating all the time. And, uh, you know, it got to a point where I couldn't even get like my boxing coach would wrap my hands up to go spar and I would just be sweating before I showed up to the gym he's like what's wrong with you dude I'm like I don't know man like so I would I'd go home and I'd just drink but then I went I'd work out once a day to two a day to three a day so then I got down to 170 pounds where you know I was just so skinny and the only way that I would get relief was to drink or take something Mm -hmm. right yep so anyway, that that was kind of like that chapter. It was just a crazy time, you know, and that kind of led to 
my first suicide attempt in 2011. It was a, not even a year after, it was a, maybe six months. I had no job, no wife, no friend. All my friends were gone. And I was like in my house, 6,000 square foot house. Everyone's like, you got everything. And I was like, I ain't got nothing, dude. So I was like, how am I gonna pay the bills? <laughs> I gotta go get another job and my head's all fucked up. So that was kind of like what catapulted me into that. And what ultimately happened was I started drinking so hard that I was drinking 24 seven almost and isolating myself. I couldn't even be, go to my gym for a while. And I was, I made a decision to kill myself in 2011. I don't remember what month it is cause it was all haze. But my buddy Ron, um, somebody called him and said, hey man, your boy's a mess, bro. And he was living in Tulsa, Oklahoma. He's got four kids of his own. He's running a, a nonprofit. He's a great fucking guy. He's been by my side for 28 years now, which makes me seem old. But No, we're old. Just, yeah. just to make it really clear, we are now <laughs> officially. Super old. We are old. But he rang the doorbell, man. And he rang the doorbell. And I, 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 I'm never a suicide note guy. Sit on my couch had plastic up in my bathroom because I, I was a conscientious suicidal guy. I sat on my couch, it was maybe around 10 in the morning, drank a half a bottle by that point, and my doorbell rang and I was like, should I get the fucking doorbell or fucking off myself? And it was a hard decision, dude, to be honest with you. So I answered the door and my buddy Ron's standing at the fucking door. And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? You live in Tulsa. I live in Lake Wiley, South Carolina. And he's like, hey bro, you look like shit. He's like, go get dressed. I'm like, what are you doing here? And he's like, we're going. I said, where are we going? He's like, we're going to the bar. <laughs> the worst. And he calls it the yeah. worst intervention ever. <laughs> but it was the best. That, that was a turning point. I'm worried about your drinking. Let's <laughs> yeah. go drink and Let's talk about Let's go to the it. bar. Yeah. So that was a turning point for me is that day. Like that was kind of like kind of the realization set in that I have problems, you know, like. So I, I you know. Life this happened, so I ended up getting another job in six months, but so I just I, grinded. I, I want to you know? I want to stop you there for a second. Just kind of one of the things that is always striking to me, a couple things. The first is that your friends all thought you were good. You know, a couple guys didn't, but for the most part, people thought you were good because monetarily you were doing well, you were physically fit, you were doing things. You know, I, you know, and I, I, I've known you for a little while and you're, you're an upbeat person. So I'm a funny motherfucker when you I'm, know, you know, most I mean, of the time. So, <laughs> so, you know, the juxtaposition of that and how you were feeling, if you can, and I know it's not easy. Can you try to explain to people that have not really considered taking their lives, um, what do you think about? Like, what is, what are you telling yourself during these moments? Because yeah. I want, the reason I'm asking you this, and I know it's very personal, but you know, like every veteran, I have a ton of friends and acquaintances and former soldiers and former bosses that have killed themselves. And the story is almost always the same. It's, I had no idea or I thought he was good or yeah, he was a little bit off, but you know, he was tough or he was fun or he was whatever. So like, what is, what was, what were you telling yourself? Not what you were saying, but what were you telling yourself? What were you thinking? Well, I think there's two things. I mean, first for me, there was anxiety. Like I noticed this pattern 10 years later. So that was like the next 10 years of my life. I was successful outwardly, but I was just, 
I was having panic attacks at work. I was sweat. I had to wear a suit every day to work. My next job, I ran our U.S. armored vehicle business for Jankel, a great company. And then I, I got reloaded to my next one, a turnaround situation in uh, Georgia, which led me to where I live now. And during that period, outwardly, everyone was like, hey, you're good to go. But I was just in my, like, so for me, I had anxiety, depression, then suicidal ideation all the time. But other than that, you were good. Most of the time. So, but it was, the, the anxiety was always there. Like I, my, so basically your brain stent, like your, your, um, Parasympathetic, parasympathetic nervous system was on overdrive 24 seven. I couldn't understand why, because my combat situations, the, the things that I were in, I had no issue. I had no like, and there's two things. You have a moral injury and then you have your, which is more shame and guilt based, mm-hmm. right? That's what I suffer from, which I never didn't figure that out until like 12 years later, because I started diving into this, like, hey, how am I, I got to fix this shit, yep. you know? So the other ones are more fear-based when you have like nightmares, flashbacks, when you you hear a loud noise and you react, that's fear-based responses, which is also PTS uh, or post-traumatic stress. So mine was more from moral injuries of working for a company. There's other things that I won't talk about publicly, but um, they they were more moral injuries because I have a strict moral code and I violated it twice. And... I'm a principal guy. And when you violate your moral code, it can do just as much or more damage than violated it in your mind. How? Well, one is like in my gut, I knew that this company was going to fuck my buddy over and he brought me into the company. I owed him everything. And I knew he would have fucking murked everybody that worked there. And I wanted to like, I still think about it sometimes, you know, No, I get it. And I didn't do it. And I, I have to live with that shit because they didn't tell me openly. They gave me the, and I was like, man, these guys are going to fuck us over, man. I just know it. And then when I found that out, I was like, I worked for them for eight months and I wanted to burn the motherfucker down. And I didn't because the people that worked for me, I wanted to take care of them yep. because they moved from California to North Charlotte down to Fort Mill, South Carolina. And I was like, I can't fuck these guys career over, man. Cause these guys won't make the same, they won't have the same earning potential you know, we're paying them top dollar for what they're so, capable so of. So going back, what are you telling yourself in this moment? Because like, you know, again, us casually sitting here, like I have also invested belief in people that did not come through for me, but I never thought, you know, man, I screwed this up. So it's that like, bond, man. Like uh, him and I, we were very close friends. We're also very competitive when it came to business. Like mm-hmm. I would come home at three in the morning and his lights on. And he's still fucking working. I'm like, God damn, I got to get back. <laughs> I got to, I got to go work more. Cause he was such a, he was a good mentor when it came to business, you know, my buddy. And I also shared the dirt over in Iraq. You know, we were in these really crazy Sadar city, 10,000 strong. And it's just me and him doing a, you know, a route reconnaissance. And we're like, I hit a guy with my mirror once. <laughs> and he's like, you know, we were going through these crazy situations. So even though we didn't know each other for 30 years, like I do with my other buddies, it was like it exponentially. It was, it was intense. It's, it's tight. You know, you you know people better than your own family. You know what I mean? But again, I hate to keep coming back to the same thing. I, I don't want to annoy you, but like. You don't know. You, obvi- you obviously, <laughs> you know, you got to a point where you thought it was better to not be here 
than to be here. And yeah. what, what are you telling yourself on a day-to-day basis about yourself? What are you feeling? I, I want other guys that are in your situation, that were in the situation you were in, to under to like see that this is not real. Yeah, 100%. Because you get ruled by anxiety and then depression, and then you cope with that. And then you throw fuel on the fire by drinking or taking substances. And then you go to suicidal ideation. So there was times where I thought about killing myself for months, like every waking moment. And it's like, the only way out, you feel trapped. There's no other solution other than fucking killing yourself. And it's crazy. It doesn't make sense. Like when you talk to other people that haven't had that situation, you're like, I don't even understand that shit. I'm like, dude, I did that 12, 10 years. And that's what led me to do what I'm doing now is like, you feel so trapped. The only way out is to put a fucking gun in your mouth. So Woody, right? Wendy, like, let's, let's take a few steps back. When should people be reaching out? Because by the time you're already sticking a gun in your mouth and, and playing with the idea, like you're, you're, you're playing with fire. hundred percent. You know, and I, I, again, I've, I've had this conversation as of you, I'm sure many times with people I never would have thought that told me they stuck a gun in their mouth and considered pulling the trigger. You don't want anyone getting there. What, where, where do you, as an individual, like now, if you were to start having any of this, these ideations again, where's the red flag? What are the signs that a person should be looking for? I think there's a bunch. For me, what I, I had a pattern. It was anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation. So when you start getting, if, you're, if you have anxiety issues, you're sweating, you feel like you don't want to be around people, like yep. you get withdrawn. I was a fucking hermit, you know? Like I'd go to work and then I'd go home. I don't go out. I don't socialize. I just go home. And that's a war, that's a big red flag, like so isolation, lack, lack of socialization. Yeah, you don't want to be around. And there's a there's a bunch of different uh, call from, from causation. There's a lot of things that lead to to, to the end <clears throat> from with suicide. I mean, there's a lot of different situations, um, but I think the similarities. Everyone that calls me, what they want to call me and talk to me because they know I understand the symptoms and what they're going through, but isolation is a huge one right you just want to be around people it might be at first you just like you might get uncomfortable at work then your friends your close friends Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden i wasn't even comfortable being around myself that's when i was like holy shit i'm sweating sitting in my recliner at my house around no one and i'm soaking wet having panic attacks like what the hell so I think anxiety is a big one. And then withdrawing from society, like when you don't feel comfortable around certain social situations, that's a big red flag. Because then that leads to depression. Depression's easy because you know, you can look at your spouse and go, they're depressed. Yeah. They just don't seem happy. Yeah. It's hard to fake that, you know? Yep. So, um, but I think there, there are some of the red flags. And one, one thing that I... When you're in a bad spot, alcohol makes everything worse. Like makes everything worse. When you are, uh, you know, like I know personally from going through divorce, like the the only times in my life that I have really embarrassed myself, you know, nothing like, you know, like a, to, to the extent of wanting to kill myself. But it's like when you're unhappy and you throw alcohol on top of that fire, Nothing good happens. Like 100%. You, you either 
you're mean to others, you're mean to yourself, you make bad decisions, you injure relationships, like nothing good happens. So like, I'll say me personally, whenever somebody's going through a bad thing, even if they're not having suicidal ideation, I always tell people, if you're going through a rough time, run, lift weights. And that's what, but that's ironically what I tried was holistic approach, right? So I was like, I got to work out more. I'm gonna, Cause I didn't want, and I went on for 10 years and I was like, what? but with alcohol, right? Yes. Yeah, so yeah. what I finally realized to your point, alcohol is literally the worst thing you can do. Yeah. Like when people, I can't say this publicly, but I'll go ahead and say this. Um, <laughs> like THC. Yeah. From my perspective, I'm not an expert per se, but a lot less prevalence of like getting into arguments and like mm -hmm. suicidal ideation and, and also jumping further into, but I'll go ahead and just stop there and say, alcohol is one of the worst things you can do if you're depressed. It just throws fuel on the yeah. fire. And every time that I was suicidal and I had a gun in my mouth, which was literally, <clears throat> probably a hundred times a year over 10 years where I, I was just a mess. And I would like call my buddy Ron and be like, Hey bro, you've been a good friend. I'll text him. And then I'm, I'm out. And then he's like, what the fuck, you know, I know what the hell you're doing. I was drunk every time. Yeah. Every single time my, my, I was going through therapy when I figured that out. I finally figured it out that she's like, well, how many times, you know, when you were suicidal, when you're going to act on it, uh, were you under a substance like alcohol? And I was like a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. So I'm telling like, you know, it doesn't mean you have to be a hundred percent. You don't have to go cold Turkey, but if you're depressed, you should go cold Turkey. Yes. That, that's my recommendation. It's like, you got to quit drinking. That's like the best thing you can do to save your own life is to quit drinking and find some other, some other outlet, you know, for your anxiety and, and talk to a clinician. I I'm also open about meds. A lot of guys are like the VA over prescribes. It worked for me, like as a starting point, mm -hmm. it kind of leveled me out where I was like, I didn't have the, the peaks and valleys. Yep. And then I also cut out drinking where I was like, all right, I can't drink like, like I used to, to do every day of the week and going hard in the paint, yep. which is pretty excessive. So that's hundred percent going to help people. So Ron comes into your life, you know, in earnest and you start figuring things out. And then you get some, you know, you're, you get some pretty bad news, right? Your hips hurting, you go and get checked out. Talk about that. Yeah. So 2019 in September, I was, I, so the, for the, those past couple of years, I got back into high risk protection for celebrities and A-listers. I just was like, man, I can do this. So I'm like 55 because I'm taking care of myself. I was like 230 pounds. And I was doing jujitsu and MMA and lifting all the time, taking care of myself, good nutrition. And I came back from Milan. I was like, man, my hip had been hurting for about six months, but it was very intermittent. Like, that was a nice low key drop though. I came back from Milan. <laughs> With a client, you know, you know, you know, I was doing this thing yeah. in Milan. No, not a big deal. <laughs> you know, Angela Jolie, maybe you've heard of her. You know, uh, <laughs> Nothing that interesting, but I had this go on and I was like, I figured it was a sports injury. I've had tons of injuries. Sure. You're either yeah. hurt or you're injured. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I was like, this is more of an injury. I'm like, I'm pretty sure I tore something. Let me go check this out. And I waited a couple months. Like I'd feel good. And then I'd be like, man, I'm not moving. My mobility's a little weird. So I got an MRI out of pocket 
And the radiologist called me within 30 minutes because I was like, I know I tore something because I don't go there for anything. Yeah. He's like, bro, I've been doing this like 25, 30 years. He's like, I don't know. I've never seen shit like this. He's like, you need to be in the ER like right now. And my wife, Jen, she works at the hospital. She was in the ER. So I drove right to the ER. They admitted me for five days and they basically misdiagnosed me. Um, they were like, you have a bone infection. You're good to go. We're going to give you some antibiotics. You'll be fine. That sucks. And I was like, because all my friends have been getting sick that I work with in 03 and 04, specifically in Iraq, guys have been dropping left and right. A lot of cancers, ALS. We've had four ALS deaths. I think right. maybe five. Really? And then we've had brain cancer, pancreatic cancer, all SEALs, SF dudes under 40 years old. And... I've got two right now that have cancer as well. Uh, two guys that I know of leukemia and another guy has heavy metal poisoning, tons of surgeries. So we're the only ones alive so far. So I knew this and I got a second uh, opinion through Dr. Rayapudi, shout out Dr. Rayapudi. And she's an infectious disease doc, told her the whole situation where I've been. She sent me to ortho-oncologist and that got the whole thing started. They did a bone graph. The results came back within a week. I couldn't walk for six weeks, load bearing, because they went into my femoral head. And when the results came back, I called them and they're like, oh yeah, you have cancer, it's pretty advanced. It's like bone cancer, it's chondrosarcoma, it's less than 1% of 1% of all cancers, but don't worry, you're gonna be good. And I was like, this <laughs> sounds like, serious. You're like, I don't think you could follow <laughs> that up with don't worry. You know? They're like, don't, I'm sure you have questions. I'm like, yeah, I got a lot of questions. Am I gonna <laughs> fucking die like today? So then I had my femur taken out, like three quarters of my femur. Which I understand. I'm not an expert, you know, not a doctor. I understand the femur is important. It's very like for possibly a large bone in the body. It, it apparently carries a lot of my weight when I try to walk. Yeah. So I figured that out pretty it's quick. It's not at myself. all humorous. That, I didn't pass PA. That school. was a bone joke. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, I never made it the. I, I yeah. was never a PA for the yeah. record. Yeah. So I'm, I just play one on TV. Yeah. 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 So I ask smart questions. I Google shit, WebMD. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's what started it off. They were like, hey man, you're gonna need to get your femur, your hip, your glute, your quad, that's all gotta come out. And I was like, can I get not custom made, yeah. like knives out of my femur can for I, my buddies? Can I keep anything? Can I and keep they wouldn't let me. Like, I seriously sucks. asked that question. Yeah. And the guy's like, I said, I have precedence on my iPhone. Somebody else has done this, but not for knives, but. And he's like, no, you can't do that. I was like, fuck. So they take lots of stuff out of your body. And you come back from that and how's life? It was good because I had a purpose. I was like, well, I got to rehab. And, but at the time I'm still struggling with like suicidal ideation. So that's when I started getting treatment. I was like, man, I got to go jump on this stuff and get my mental health squared away. So uh, for me, I, I did go to the VA. Um, I started, you know, working with the trauma recovery group. I was trying to figure out, I'm like, I don't know what bothers me. I feel good. Like I don't have any regrets, but that's what led me to figure out my buddy, you know, John's passing with all those other things on top. That was like the catalyst that set everything ablaze. Hmm. And that took me about two years to kind of really understand. I was going, you know, through some medication at it. And I was trying a lot of things holistically because that's kind of my thing. I'm like, I can figure it's your brain, you know, like how do you un... But there's like literal damage. I also, pro I'm, you know... There's TBIs and things like that from blast waves and shocks that also come into account. And it's very complicated because PTS and TBI are all the symptoms overlap. And um, 
so I started working on that and um, that's been one of the most, I feel the best that I've ever felt in 12 years because I put the, I grinded, man. But that's kind of led me to the epiphany. I'm like, if I can't figure this out, I'm, I call myself a professional sufferer. You know, I like that, uh, you know, that term because I'm pretty good. Like when I'm suffering, I always have it with a smile on my face. I, make, I like to make jokes and like, sure. I, I fuck with the doctors yeah. and they don't know what yeah. they think of me. And I'm like, yeah, I'm dying. Yeah. I'm like, I got two cancers now. And they're like, what? And they don't know what to think, you know? But um, that's what kind of got my head straight, but also led me to what I'm doing today with the foundation and all that stuff. So, so that's a segue to, you have this cancer removed. You start, you start getting, uh, you know, your mental health taken care of. You start prioritizing that. And then just last year, you found out what? Yeah, last, last, last summer, they found nodules. They called it suspicious nodules in my lungs. <clears throat> and at that point, I knew I was stage four because the first place this bone cancer metastasizes your lung. And uh, but that's when I uh, I had uh, a missed biopsy in February this uh, last year in, in 2022. They tried to go in and biopsy. They missed. That was awesome. I, you got one job, Doc. Like, what the <laughs> fuck? And then they went back in and, and removed my lower right lobe in September 20th of 2022. And um, then they, they officially gave me the stage four, you know, I have non-treatable chondrosarcoma metastasis. So there's no treatment, other, there's no chemo, no radiation, it's just surgery. So every three months for the rest of my life, I have to get, I have like an 8% survival rate, I think, uh, something like that. But basically, whenever they do these uh, scans, if something pops up, it's either cut it out or die. That's your options. I'm like, well, that doesn't sound good. Those options kind of suck. Especially like, when you're a physical guy. Like, I, yeah. I have a lot of a, my identity was with physicality. And I'm like, I don't even know if that's that's like a Mike Tyson word. I don't think I just made that shit up. But, you know, I'm a physical guy. No, I, I think like, physicality is legitimate. Is I it? think that's a legitimate word. You're the yeah, smarter I one. I, I do. Ah, I let's, not, one. let's not say that. Let's ask the ladies <laughs> in the background. Ladies, is physicality an actual word? I say it's a word. <laughs> Peanut gallery. So, Kelsey says it's a real word. So I think we're good. <laughs> how you doing? Good. Like, I mean, how are you doing with all that? Like, that's... I, really good, man. Like, honestly, like, my mentality freaks people out because... It is what it is. At the end of the day, I would go back and do all the same shit the way that I did it because it was my path, right? And it led to me helping other people through doing, like, you know, setting up a nonprofit to help veterans that are struggling with mental health issues, suicidal ideation. I want to preserve and optimize veterans' lives through what we're doing. I'm also working on a documentary, Brothers Keeper, which is basically me trying to destigmatize um, mental health issues based on, yep. like, oh, you've got a cool guy background. And, um, and you and I are going to do an interview about that tomorrow. Yeah. And I'm super stoked for it. And, um, that's my, I, I part of me is like, man, this is the best thing that I've ever fucking done in my life. And, you know, I tell people all the time, I'm like, look, at the end of the day, if you want to grow, you got to fucking suffer, but you have to realize it's not just suffering. It's, it's, it's taking something out of that, 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 that process. You got to, if you're, you you got to put yourself in uncom uncomfortable situations to grow. That's the only way. Like nothing grows, you know, in the light. It's mm -hmm. like the darkness is what kind of perpetuates you to do great things. And that's what I want to start to do. I want to create legacy and things that 
I want to help people even after I'm gone. I want to start something that continues to help people, specifically veterans that are struggling. You and I were, you know, we were just at SHOT Show in the not too distant past together. And, uh, you know, I'm probably bastardizing this a little bit because I was a few whiskeys in when we had the conversation. But uh, you said something to me that really struck me. And we, you know, we were we were having that like quasi drunk guy conversation about everything you've been through. And you said, if I had known how much life I had left to live, I would have never considered taking my life. Yep. And I found that really profound, especially because you're staring down the barrel of, you know, a 92% chance of bad things. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. That, and, and, and especially for the guys out there right now that are sitting here listening, going, nobody wants me here. It doesn't matter if I live or die. Like life is bad. I've ruined X, Y, and Z, which is the common things that we tell ourselves when we're in these situations. Yeah. I think, I think, I mean, the message for them is like, dude, you know, one of the things that keeps me up at night, I had three, three friends that were suicidal last week, spent time on the phone with them. And I'm like, it's not only that you matter, but the fucking wake of destruction that you leave when you commit suicide, you impact so many fucking people, man. And I can say this, but having been in that position, you just, you, all you think about is a way out. And people are like, you're so selfish. That guy's going to commit suicide. He was so selfish. They're not thinking about other people. So I don't know if that'll resonate with people, but I'm like, bro, every freaking you matter. Not only do you matter, but for me, this next chapter in my life was because I fought. And I'm like, if you guys are a fucking warrior, I don't care if you're a rock fucking bottom. If you identify yourself as a fucking warrior, the hardest thing for you to fight is your fucking self. And you have to get the fuck after it, you know? And the only way I know how to do it is go fucking head on. And that's seeking treatment, you know, like reach out to somebody. It could be a chaplain. It could be a mental health specialist. It could be the VA. And I know a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, people that are like, fuck the VA. I get it. But there's a million of resources out there and we're one of them, you know. And that's what I want to be is like, you got to reach out for help. First, you have to identify you have a problem. Second, you have to be willing to do something about it. And third, you have to fucking like take action. Yep. That's the three steps. So if your life fucking sucks and you feel like shit beside, don't kill yourself, man. Like go out there and fight, fight for your life. And it's going to be harder than anything you ever did. Cause fighting yourself is the hardest fucking thing you can ever do. I, I didn't make the saying up. You know? I mean, I, I've had, uh, you know, my buddy, uh, Jason Redmond, uh, Jason Van Camp and Chad Robichaud all use it when they speak, but uh, fight off the X, you know? And so for those of you, you know, for those of you that have no idea what that means, like when you get ambushed, the place, you know, the maximum killing, uh, zone for an ambush is considered the X. And if you stay there, you die. So you have to, you have to find a way off of it. And so, and I like to quote Patty Pimblett from the UFC, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Before his reputation just went the other way. But yeah. Patty Pimblett had a fucking badass, like, what turned me on to him maybe about three, four, five months ago. I don't remember. You know, he just got off. He was doing his weight cut. Yeah. And 
he got a call that one of his friends committed suicide. After his fight, he, thank, thankfully for him, he won his fight and emotions were high. And he was like, I'd rather me mate be crying on my shoulder than be going to his funeral next week. He's like, talk to someone, talk to fucking anyone. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the fucking coolest things because it was authentic. It was fucking raw and real. And I'm like, that's what the message is. Like, I can't do any better than what he did is like, go get some fucking help, yeah. man, because your buddies are going to be fucking rocked and devastated. And yeah, it's not fair to anyone yeah, you're else. Gonna, like, you're going to hurt a lot of people. 100%. So given that, you know, your situation, I, I you know, I, I don't want to in any way minimize it, but it's an interesting backdrop because, you know, again, you and I spoke a lot at SHOT Show. You don't really give a shit anymore about, well, what's so-and-so going to think? Or, you know, like, oh, what if they don't like me? Like, these aren't things that occur to you anymore because there's a reasonable chance that time is short. And so you've got to maximize it. Yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword. You know, my, my thing is with cancel culture and all the other shit going on in the world, I don't want to block or stymie growth for helping people. That's 100%. my only consideration. Other than that, I don't really don't give a fuck, you know, what other people think. Um, I'm all about, you know, I understand where people are at, you know, to a degree. I can't say I understand every situation, but the process is fairly similar. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And if we can reach just one person, you know, that's why I was like, if I do a documentary, and I spend $200,000 on it. You save one And life. I save one life fucking 100 percent worth Absolutely my time worth it. i don't yep. care if it takes me three years that's what i want to do mm -hmm. because that's one person but i've already had you know when you when you do the media there's not enough going on in the press right now there's not a lot of these podcasts talking about because it's just, it's a it's not fun it's not a fun you know i yeah. make it fun because you yeah know, i'm like you yeah. gotta make light of the situation you know but yeah what's a little suicide amongst friends yeah i mean you know, you know you it know, is I what mean, it is like, you know but at the end of the day, there's not enough media attention. There's not enough focus on it. Nobody wants to talk about it. And that's what we've got to raise awareness, destigmatize it. That's why I'm here is just, I'm like, dude, yeah, I've, I've had a cool background, you know, as far as my military career, I did some cool stuff. There's many, many, many other people done way more rad stuff than me. That's not the point. Comparison is the thief of joy. So you can't say, hey man, I want to get help, but there's more people more deserving. Yeah. That's a fucking misnomer and a bad idea, like you're the person. So if you're struggling, you gotta be the person that reaches out mm -hmm. and ask for help. Cause there's a million good resources. You just go online. There's 40,000 yeah. nonprofits out interjecting there, real quick right now. The, the, the members in the military that are killing themselves at the highest rate, the highest rate are 18 to 25 year olds that have never deployed. So the idea that whatever you did wasn't enough to get help is insane. Um, you know, what I believe happens is you get out of the military and you lose your tribe. Yeah. And, you, lo and you lose your purpose. You're not defending the country anymore. And you go back to whatever life you had before. Most people just go home. And they don't replace those things and it causes a major problem. Right. But I want to shift gears, right? So we said, I sent you, uh, you know, before you came on the show, I said, what do you want to talk about? And like, you were going to come up with a thing to talk about. I was going to come up with a thing to talk about. So I want to start with your thing. 
And uh, I said, you know, what is the thing that concerns you the most about the country right now? And uh, you annotated that one of the concerns you had was um, with the current state of masculinity. Well, number one for the country, I mm -hmm. can't even sum this culture. I'll go like super broad because yeah. it's identity. You know, when I was when I was going through rehab in 2019, the, la the, the next three years, I was like, what the fuck country am I living in? Like, I don't want to recognize it. There's like between the racial rights and this and that, cancel culture, woke culture, uh, politics, uh, no, va vaccine, no vaccine, mask, no mask. Like I could go on and on and on. That's just in three years. Now, if you, if you take a step back, I think part of, like, we could talk about systemic issues and I like to have an idea of like how to fix it. And I don't like bitching about things I can't fix. 100%. Yeah. However, if you just take one segment out of that, like something we could talk about, because like, I'm a male, you're a male. Look. You don't know that. Ish, you, you could identify. <laughs> I'm gonna get canceled on this. I know I'm gonna get let's canceled. Get, let's get canceled together. It takes a lot of time, effort, and resources to make the neutral position, and we couldn't do it without our sponsors. In 2016, a vet named Jason Murph slid into my DMs to talk about the seasoning he had created for grilling meats. I gave him some advice on marketing, and he sent me some samples of his new brand with a donkey on each bottle emblazoned with the words, grill your ass off. Fast forward seven years. I'm at a charity event for veterans, and who's the headline sponsor? None other than Grill Your Ass Off. He still has the amazing seasoning that started it all, but now he's got condiments, beef jerky, incredible sauces, and even gear. Grill Your Ass Off won the American Freedom Fund Veteran Small Business of the Year Award and is committed to giving back to veteran causes and mentoring veteran entrepreneurs. The one downside? After using these incredible seasonings, you will be assless. That was a dad joke. You see, the product is called grill your ass off so you know you grill and then boom ass gone no you don't like that okay well anyway check them out at grillyourassoff.com that's grillyourassoff.com great taste great company great cause no ass use np15 at checkout for 15 percent off at grillyourassoff.com that's november papa one fiver but I think, you know, one, one, just one issue out of a million different things is, you know, the term toxic masculinity always is kind of, it's, it's just been coming up more and more. And then like, it was probably like six months ago, I heard about testosterone poisoning. That was a term. I was like, what the fuck is toxic? It was like, you know, uh, testosterone poisoning. What the fuck is that? And so there's this, there's this whole idea that being a male and it's funny is like it's not it's not okay anymore like if you're assertive and they like to use word dominance like i don't know who they are but they're people in the media you know and that that's part of the issue is like where does all this stem from and i think over the last 10 years probably longer but certainly in the last 10 years social media has blown up Sure. Kids that are growing up are very reliant on technology, whether mm -hmm. that's gaming, TikTok, Instagram, Facebook. I've never even had a Facebook account, right? So I'm a, I'm, a, I'm ancient. Julia in the background also has never had a Facebook account. That's because she's a very young woman. 
Yeah. Doesn't That's believe, for old people. Doesn't believe in Yeah, Facebook. you got to go on TikTok. She's man. on TikTok and, you know, the gram when she's slumming. But I think I think there's an issue with like when you talk about toxic masculinity, I think there's this you're you're basically trying to undercut men from being men. And I'm like, it's okay to be a man. It's okay to be a woman. I don't care how anybody identifies, to be honest with you. Like that's the beauty of this country is anybody can be anybody that they want. And long as they don't hurt somebody else yep. or try to push their ideals on me, I'm cool. 100%. Where I have a problem is there's young men growing up in this country. Uh, my wife and I are raising an 18 year old and watching how he went through school and just the conversations and debate that are going on in public school systems. And he was in military school at one mm -hmm. point, which was private. So that we felt like we had some level of control. But it's kind of it's it's kind of concerning because it's not okay to be a man. It's not okay to be dominant. It's not okay to be like if you work out, you're you're oh he's a sure. toxic male because yeah. he likes to be physically fit. I'm like that's not the case, and I think it's very confusing if you're coming up as a young man today in today's culture. It's like where do I fit? How do I? What is man? What is if when yeah. somebody says you're you're going to be a you're a strong young man? What the fuck does that mean to me? Mm -hmm. And so you know. I want to throw some some stats out because when you brought this up, I, I wanted to prepare myself. It's also something that I care about. I'm a I'm a dad with like a hundred kids, so I have I have sons, <laughs> I have daughters, and you know I think that the country has done a phenomenal job of investing in women in the, over the last generation. Um, I think that we have done a terrible job of investing in young men, and so I just want to I want to throw out some things. These are all these all come from like you know, scientific studies, this isn't like, you know, Fox News and this isn't CNN. This is like, th this is what's happening right now. Peer, peer reviewed death. <laughs> this generation has a significant testosterone decrease. So like when we, our generation, when we grew up, the current generation has anywhere from 20 to 40% less testosterone than we had. And they don't exactly know why yet. You know, it could be lack of uh, like sports, it could be something in the food we're eating. It could be like it's who, physicality though. There, there's something going on. We don't know. Right. We don't know. I'm not a right. scientist and they haven't figured it out yet, but that is a real thing and it's a real problem. Um, there's, there's a market increase in school shootings, youth violence. This is all men. Women are not shooting up schools. Um, there's a massive increase in obesity in young men. Uh, only 40% of people in college are men now. 60% are women. This is a significant change from when we were kids. Mm -hmm. um, middle class and poor men are seeing year over year decreases in adjusted income. Women are seeing increases. One in four boys are now classified as having a developmental disability. And then a crazy statistic, and I, I did not see, like I had no idea that this was the case, but so, Kids without fathers in households have a significantly higher chance of ending up in prison, using drugs, being obese, uh, enlisting in risky sexual behavior. This is especially true of women. Um, being involved in abusive relationships, also especially true in women. Live in poverty. And the crazy thing is this is only true in single mother households. In single father households, where there's only a dad, children have almost identical statistics as those of married families. Hmm. So for the first time 
you know, people are identifying that a critical component to successful children is having a father figure around. It doesn't have to be a, your genetic dad. Genetic dad or stepdad in the household is a critical component. But simultaneous to us identifying this is a, criti a critical component, there are fewer and fewer men that are sticking around to be fathers. So when I think about, to me, toxic masculinity is like, faking the funk, like not coming through and doing your job, like as a, as a dad, as a man, as you know, your responsibility to society. And so I wanted to drop that on you and then let you talk about, you know, well, I'm not an expert. Listen, neither am I, but as you drop those statistics. So you look at three, three, just three factors, mm -hmm. nutrition, it's gone down. Sure. Fast food is super prevalent. Yep. If you went back 50 years, fast food wasn't as prevalent. Yeah, it was a treat. It was a treat. When I was growing up, you know, we didn't have, my dad was a cop, you know, single dad raising me. If we went out when we were little, it was like maybe McDonald's like once a month. Yeah. Yeah. It you was know, like, maybe. wow, we get to go to McDonald's. And I don't even yeah, eat fast yeah. food my whole yeah. adult life. Yeah. I don't eat it unless Chick-fil-A shout out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so you have nutrition. And then you have the statistic where you, you don't have, you know, fathers sticking around as a, as a role model, but then you have social media, which is a huge impact in yeah. gaming. Kids are sedentary, leads to obesity and they're online. They don't engage. Mm -hmm. That's a huge difference. So when I grew up, people got the news from the newspaper. Yep. My dad would read the newspaper, the old guys on the weekend, the old, old people would go to a diner talk about politics, make informed decisions based upon what they read. Now you get, if you look for Facebook, you had more like you actually had to read, then you went to Instagram more photo based. And now you got TikTok. It's even shorter, like so, clips. Yeah. So you're seeing a, a degradation of like attention span, yep. like give it to me now. But with that comes a huge problem, which is kind of a little bit off topic, but it, it, you know, people, as they're looking at this stuff, they're not, they're not really getting the facts, which is leading to like social media. If you look at the social dilemma, everything's fed off of anger. Mm -hmm. So they're looking at photos making an in, yeah. like it's not an informed decision based but, on fact. But I want to push back just because our topic right now is right, yeah, the problem right. with men. Right. So I agree with everything you're saying. And I've said the same things. But kids are just sedentary. But women just, are seeing the same messaging that guys are seeing and they're thriving. And guys are, I mean, as a collective, now the, the, the high-performing males are still high-performing males. They're making more money, they're doing better, but like the majority of men are doing worse. And so why do, right. you, th why do you think that is? And since we're, you know, since we're playing expert right now, what do you think needs to change? Well, to turn I that around, I think there's uh, you, if you take social media, that's 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 an input. Right. I can't. We you know, the genie's out of the bottle. You, you know, it's like Pandora's box is like, well, we can't. I don't know how to cork that. But I think parents need to parent like number one. And like we didn't let our, you know, Gavin, our 18 year old, we did not let him have, you know, social media. Well, I'll say an iPhone till 14 years old. At 16, we let him have a fully enabled phone where he could Google whatever mm -hmm. because he was old enough. I was like, well, you're going to be 18 soon. Like, 
So I think you got to put those restrictions on. Also gaming. I didn't let him sit in the house and just sit there gaming. He wanted to game all day long. I'm like, you, academics are important, man. Sports are important. This is kind of a nice to have. It's not your being. But I think if you look at social media, kids are confused, especially young men now more than ever, because they're like, where do I fit? And part of that is based on social media and the expectations of guys when you start throwing around toxic masculinity and testosterone poisoning and nobody fights back. Why yeah. is that? Well, the older generation, I'll throw myself into that boat. People don't want to push back on that because we have a woke and, you know, our culture is a cancel culture. So if you're a working professional, I don't have to worry about that because I'm quasi retired, but I'm running a foundation. So I don't want to get into that fight. Why? Well, cause I don't want to detract from helping people because if I, social media gives a platform to less than 1% of people, this small demographic that has this, these ideals and they go, they run rampant yeah. because guys like myself, I'll call myself out on this are afraid to hip check them publicly because there could be a huge backlash that f impacts you financially for the older generation of men. Then you have some guys fighting back and they're seem to be the far right guys. So hold that thought you know? for a sec, because I'm going to bring that. That's my topic. And that's what we're going to close with. <laughs> hold that, hold that thought for a sec. But I want to throw another, you know, when we talk about toxic masculinity and I, I think there is such thing as to toxic masculinity, well, of course. I, I think there's a difference between masculinity and toxic masculinity. I think that, you know, but this, the, the, the highest percentage of, men who have never had sex that are 30 or younger is happening right now. And there are like scores of interviews, like, you know, scientific interviews with these people. And there's essentially like a big portion of this generation that has no interest in it, which is something that coming from our generation, I can't even fathom because that was literally the only thing we thought about, you know, when we were teenagers. Um, but like some, again, you know, and I don't know if this is Online tied, porn. tied to the, and that that's one of the things that of course. they're talking about. Is we had to trade Playboys. So like, look at the difference, like the ease of, uh, I'm trying to think of the, the, the term and terminology for like, you know, the, the quick fix. So when I was growing up, we, we, we would have to like beg, borrow and steal. You couldn't go to a store and buy Playboys if you're like, you know, 14. Of course they, not. they look at me and they're like, you're like yeah. 10, dude. Of course not. You know? So we'd sneak into the attic, you know, you go to your buddy's house and be like, yo, I got a dad's Playboy. And you'd have to beg, borrow and steal. And you'd have to actually communicate face to face to get that fix. Mm -hmm. Well, now if you, people that don't parent well, they give them an iPhone, they have full carte blanche to literally the most Do whatever, obscene yeah, you crap. Can, you can go see, find whatever you want. You can at find a super young age. Crazy stuff. Yeah. And that's, that's not good. And why would you want to go have a sexual relationship if you, you're, you know, you're online all day looking at that kind of stuff. It's going to detract. I think there's there's another piece to it that I, I think about a lot. And like, I, I think it's bad for society. I'm not saying it's going to change. Like, I know how the world does not go backwards, right? Right. But when we were kids, if you wanted to ask a girl out, you had to physically ask. You had to have game. Out. You well, it's not not even game. Well, like forget game for you a second. You got to at least talk. Because I because I, I am not a person with game. I, I am I I never have been. I never will be. Uh, but you had to walk up to a girl that you liked, have all the anxiety associated with that. Yeah. 
and ask her out. Right. And sometimes she says no. And you're like, oh, God. And it was like in-person rejection. But you had to go out there and have that courage. And if you had beef with somebody, like you had to, maybe they were picking on you. You know, that happened to me. Like when I, when I moved back from Italy, you know, back to the United States after living in Italy for a long time, I got beat up all the time for being an Italian kid, even though I was an American citizen born in America, but I had been in Italy for a while. So like I had to learn how to fight. I started combat sports because I was tired of getting my ass kicked. So I joined judo, you know, um, but there was like a, things were very visceral and direct in our generation. Definitely. Whereas I watch my kids now and it's like, Snapchat. Flirting is Snapchat. You take a picture of your forehead, send it to a yeah. girl, and yeah. like, what, yeah. what, what was Flirt, that? Flirting <laughs> is Snapchat. They ask right. each other out via text message. There's no, it's not, it's not visceral and personal. If a kid fights in school right now, he's probably expelled. So all the things that are, frankly, very normal, masculine coping, like, I personally, it's not like I want kids fighting, but I personally don't think middle school and high school boys getting into a fist fight over something stupid is a big deal. It's part of life. But where I live now. Sorting it out. <laughs> we had, my, my kids are friends with two first cousins that got into a fist fight over a girl and the two families sued each other. Jeez, that's crazy. And it's like, guys, like this is insane. And so, you know, we ask ourselves, like, what, where, how are we in this situation? And it's like, we're not asking people to have any responsibility for who, for what it takes to be an adult. Like, childhood is extended. You're a child through college now. You're not an adult. Like, it used to be like, you turned 18, go do something. Like, you can go to college, you can get a job, you can, but like, you're your own responsibility now. Now it's like... I think you hit the nail on the head. People with, are still paying their kids phone plans and they're 30, you right. know? Like, uh, Quigley, you laughing in the background over there? <laughs> Quigley, do your parents pay for your phone? Do your parents pay for your phone? They do. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard out here. <laughs> 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 but that's the answer. Like, they're all the same things like what I'm saying about the old timers going to read the paper. Yeah. You're processing data. You're talking and engaging one on one. It's personal. Which takes it, even even having a debate takes courage, right? Yes. You're taking all yes. that out of the account. Yep. And you're getting those quick fix. Mm -hmm. There, you're not you're not putting your your reputation on the line going up to some girl. You're just going on Tinder or Bumble yeah. or whatever the you know, the new thing yeah, is you're, you're swiping. You're it's literally so easy. You're literally so easy. swiping people as if they are irrelevant, a pair of socks. Yeah. You're like, no, or shoes no. or a t-shirt. Like she oh, said, no, not a big deal. I don't deal. like this. Yeah. Like it doesn't, it's not, there is no risk. And the, the more risk you remove, the less human you become. Like, I just think that like, as much as it sucked to get rejected every now and then, it's like, all right, that wasn't that bad. I'm fine. Go out with someone else. Like, I mean, right. like that's an important lesson because you now have dudes that like 
decide they're in love with a girl that they don't even know that stalk them that like it, you know that turns to violence yeah, it so turns have you to, ever talked to this person you don't even person? know this person like, no. but like you're all in it's like you know maybe take a step back like but the, there's a whole generation of people that haven't had to do this and i i just think that is an issue so all right i want to i want to transition because we don't want to have one of these you know yeah. 17 hour podcasts because <laughs> we're not we're not that cool i mean you're cool but like <laughs> You're like two hour cool. Yeah, probably about like, seven. Probably hours. like fifteen minute cool. Yeah, like well, eh, you know, 10, that's, 15. That's what she said. Swipe right. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, so we're going back, going back to what you were talking about before, social media. So really, I'm a big believer in, like, I was on uh, the Tim Pool podcast, and Tim. Uh, and and I, I like enjoyed being on it. I was I was very appreciative of being on it. But Tim is like adamantly a civil war guy. Like we're coming on the next civil war. And I and the whole time I was like algorithms. No. I was like no, I don't I don't think so. And there's a number of reasons. I don't even want to talk about that I because I don't, I'm not I having know. a civil war conversation yeah. right now. But here's where I here's where I was going with that. So last year they did a poll of all Americans and like this, there's no partisanship. It was just like, what do you believe on this issue? What do you believe on this? And what they found is that Americans agree universally on 84% of everything. And they compared that to like how European, so to, to put this in perspective, a liberal in America is more aligned to a conservative in America than a liberal in America to a liberal in Europe or a conservative in America or conservative in Europe. Like it's, it's so close, but yet I feel, and this is emotion, I feel like, uh, you know, we are at like visceral odds against each other. Like the left and the right have never been further apart, but actually over time, the data suggests that we're more together and so, um, mm -hmm. you know, so, so these, you know, when the, I, I'm a big data guy, I believe in it. So if we are so aligned, why do we have algorithms, the large, a large <laughs> portion of the talking heads discussing it like we're about to have a civil war when these people literally have no idea what civil war really looks like, you know, you've been around as long as I have longer. So you've probably seen Bosnia, Kosovo, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, Ukraine. Like, there's nothing cool about civil war. Like, it is not good. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple roots, you know, root causes to that. It's like, where are you getting the data? And if you look at the media, you look at social media, what, what sells what gets the most attention is negative attention. Mm -hmm. And they realized this from society and they capitalized on that, you know? And I think that's kind of one of the big selling points for social media is, you know, it's like the social uh, dilemma, I think it was on Netflix, is anger fuels interaction. Mm -hmm. So that's what all people see is based on those algorithms. They, they don't want good news, feel good news, feel good. So what, what I've chose to do with social media, what people can do to change it is like, you know, I want to weaponize social media for good. For what I do, I try to stay out of politics online because I don't want anything that's going to divide people anymore. Yep. I'm not saying what I do. <laughs> I'm like the spec. 
But if more people do, if you're posting things that are positive, I haven't had a troll yet. I'm like, where's my troll? Maybe I'm not famous and famous enough, you know, they're coming. <laughs> yeah. Shout out the trolls. <laughs> give me, give me some bad, you know, interaction. But like, you know, it's because I'm not putting anything out. Like, I'm like, look, dude, it doesn't matter. Though. Give it, it enough time. Like, but I think that's one of the data points is like, to your point is like, why, like the C, I believe the CIA has recently run that statistic. They do it in all these different countries yeah. and they've done it here in, in the U S and they said, we're primed for civil war. If this was a third world nation, we're like 84% probable going to go to civil war. Do I think that's the case? No. But I also think that there's a large, that large majority in the center, that big, if you take like a, a bell-shaped curve, like sure. Six Sigma, that majority nice. is silent. Nice. I know. I was just trying to sound smart. <laughs> it didn't work. But I think that a lot of people are silent and you're also not going to get the engagement of like the feel good people aren't getting it. You get the fringes. You said something at the very beginning of this conversation where you were talking about like the juice isn't worth the squeeze with cancel call. You don't even want to get involved because you have nothing to gain from it. But it is the yeah. truth. Like half the time when I'm on social media, I roll my eyes at people from both sides of the aisle espousing these extreme idiotic positions. And it's like, I'm not, I'm not even putting my toe in the water here right. because I don't want to deal with the idiots affiliated with these people. If you say, hey, this guy's wrong and here's why, you now have to deal with crap from hundreds or thousands of people. And it's like, eh, these people aren't going to listen to me anyway, so you don't say anything. But the truth is that like most of America is like, let's, let's take it all down a notch. And the stats show that the 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 media and the and social media is driven by eight percent on the left and twelve percent on the right. They are they are the essentially the narrators of the story, and everybody else just kind of, for better or for worse, like picks a side or shuts up. And I think that's the problem, though. Less than, I always say like less than 1% of the country has the largest voice, right? And they're the drivers. Yeah. Because we allow them to do it. Because you engage and give them fuel. You know, it's like that negative engagement. If you jump on that bandwagon, yep. they're, you're boosting their ratings and that's all people see. Yeah. So the, the, the answer to the question is stop engaging with that silent, that, that crazy majority or minority. Stop engaging with them and they'll go away. But instead, like we have the silent majority that tends to like jump on board and start writing hate. And it's like you're fueling them and their, their ratings are going up. You're giving you're boosting their credentials. Yep. And then guys like us or the viewers are seeing that shit nonstop. So I, I've right? experienced it. I've experienced it twice in recent history. So the first is, you know, the, the fall of Afghanistan. You know, hmm. uh, you know, I was involved in, in the, the evacuation of of. Uh, a cobble at the end of that. And then the, in the wake of that, there was a bunch of support, you know, right in the wake. And then, you know, um, uh, you know, we kind of got into this situation where like, you know, the, the Democrats didn't want to talk about it because it was seen as a, you know, a blight on the president's record and the Republicans wanted to talk about it, but only as a blight on the president's record. And neither group wanted mm -hmm. to solve the problem of all of these people that we had promised we would take to safety. The Democrats don't want the people here because, 
you know, it's a reminder of, you know, the president's failure. And the Republicans don't want the people here because right now it's in vogue to be anti-immigration amongst Republicans. And so, like, um, there are very few people that are, like, in politics that are willing to stand up and say, this is the right thing. This is the thing we should be doing. And I find it, you talked earlier about a moral injury. Like, I, I see that as a moral injury. And then I, I, you know, I'm seeing the same thing in Ukraine where, you know, like I can understand a person saying, I think we should stay out of the war. Like that's a totally reasonable situation. But I don't understand a person saying like Putin's a good dude and we don't understand and, and like, oh, the Ukrainians are corrupt and he's just trying to weed out the corruption. Like that's insane. Like it's insane. Like I have been there. I've seen the situation. Um, and so like it is it is getting harder and harder to give people the reality because of this, because of this, like there are two sides to everything. Like we should be able to agree on lots of things like Russia invading a sovereign nation like that should be pretty like, hey. That's not okay. We can argue about what we want to do. Mm -hmm. Like that should be pretty universally not okay. Yep. Um, <laughs> and so, all right, my, my last question on this topic. You can, you can make one change as king of the world that is going to, or at least king of America, that's going to change the way that we treat each other politically. What is it? Terms on Congress? Um, yeah, that's a tough question. I know. That's, that's why, a tough question. That's, why you that's make, a big question. That's why you make the big bucks. <laughs> yeah. Let's solve this tonight. The biggest change, say that one more time. What is the one change that you would make as king of America that solves this political problem we have? Not of telling people what they have to think, but making it so that we can be reasonable with each other. Man, that's that's a tough one, man. With the between social media and the media, I think they're the two biggest. Um, I mean, honestly, from what we see every day, I think there would be change within the demographics with the media as a whole, and I call that social media and media. Um, what that change would be, because shoot from the hip, like you're. Well, one you're of the, the biggest king. things you're for me, king. I Make feel like people should be do whatever they want to do. It's kind of like Elon Musk taking over, you know, Twitter. Mm -hmm. I thought that was going to be a great thing. And then there started to be controls. I'm like, I believe free press. I feel like everybody should be able to say what they say. Where I think I think it would go down to algorithms, you know, like, and I don't know how you would do that, but I think we need to get rid of the uh, the algorithms and social media, and also if it if it bleeds, it reads that mentality. I think I would find some smart people to figure out like what's the answer without imposing and uh, in, in limiting free speech. Let's take these algorithms out and let people engage in a proper manner. I think that would be one of the quickest uh, ways to change so, our society. So you our, think, you think society, the, the core you know? problem is the algorithm tries to find like-minded people so that they... It generates hate, you yeah. know, it, and division. And I think that I don't know what the answer is as far as specifically how to change that. And that goes with the media as well. If you look at Fox, CNN, whatever your, your you know, BBC, whatever that is, they... 
it's the same, it's the same issue with the, uh, the media as in social media. And I think you got to change that model as far as like, how do you capitalize those things? And I think they just need to, I'd be a czar and, and hire a board of people like, Hey man, we're going to change the model of social media and media. And those algorithms need to go. It just needs to be, I mean, just pure as the driven snow as God intended, <laughs> as the social media gods intended. And now it's time for the Warrior Rising Veteran Entrepreneur of the Week. Warrior Rising is the preeminent veteran entrepreneurship charity in the galaxy. Warrior Rising provides education, mentorship, grants, and more to veteran entrepreneurs. No one helps build more successful entrepreneurs than Warrior Rising. Each week, Warrior Rising selects one veteranpreneur to feature in our program. Here's this week's. If you've served in the armed forces, been camping for extended periods of time, or just want to relate to this anecdote that I'm using to key up the product I'm introducing, then you'll agree that shaving on the go sucks. The number of times I was out in the field trying to shave my face when I'd nick myself, pun intended, with a crappy razor blade that I'm dipping into a canteen cup of cold water is too high to count. Introducing Kason Shaving. When I heard about them, I immediately ordered a shaving kit and gave it a try. The kit came with an adjustable double-edged razor and stand, a hundred blades, a shaving brush, two shaving soaps, and a canvas travel pouch with no man mandatory monthly subscription. You'll be smoother than Lord Voldemort's head and more comfortable than sitting on a velvet couch while listening to Barry White and being hand-fed grapes. So if you want the best shave out there, visit caissonshaving.com. That's C-A-I-S-S-O-N shaving.com. Rapid fire questions to close. You have to make, these have to be quick answers. Go. You can't go deep. Good Why luck. are you successful? Um, uh, motivation and drive. Okay. You can only, we're, we're going to wipe your brain completely. You only get to keep one skill. The rest is gone. Who you are, everything else. One skill. Not quitting. Okay. Good one. Uh, what's something that you've fixed about yourself that's made a huge difference in your life? I would have to go back to the mental health, you know, like I, mean, I put a lot of, lot of time into that so um i'd say uh self-help you know okay what's the toughest animal that you could kill in hand-to-hand -hand combat wow man you're tough i want to see something cool like grizzly or cheetah but i don't know that's the case or lion um We'll go with honey badger. That's honey badger. You think you could take a honey badger? Yeah, they're little. You know, I could drop kick Ooh. that thing with my titanium leg. Ooh, honey badger is a tough animal. I know that's why I went with it, but it's small and it's kind of I mean, doable. They can, they can be bitten by a poisonous snake and just recover and then eat it. Yeah, we're gonna go with honey badger. All right, sexy. honey badger. That, that is that is off the, the that tongue. is a bold <laughs> choice, sir. Um, last one. If you could wish one change into existence that could make this country better. And the instant you wish it, it happens. What would it be? I would get rid of all social media. Boom. Now Julia's it. crying in the background. I know. She's like literally, <laughs> literally crying. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the neutral position. Um, we've got your socials, but do you want to do you want to say your socials, or do you want me to read them off this paper? I think you could do it dynamically. Yeah, profoundly. Yeah. So on again, not on Facebook, but. Um, on Instagram, Chris underscore Cathers. Um, 
on Instagram. And then if you want to go to our landing page to see what we're doing with the documentary until we get our website up at the end of next month, that's um, uh, wearebrotherskeeper.com. And um, soon we're going to have all our socials up at the end of next month. We're going to have everything, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, at brotherskeeper.org. Uh, so there, there are socials. Awesome. And yeah. super excited for Brothers Keeper. Um, I'm consulting with uh, Chris's amazing team on that documentary, and it's going to be great. We're doing our interview tomorrow. And uh, as always, you can, uh, you can find us at neutral underscore position on Instagram uh, and YouTube and YouTube. Yes, Julia's scowling at me in the back. I don't know what I've done wrong. I feel like I feel like I did a decent, what's wrong, Julia? <laughs> Neutral underscore position on Instagram and YouTube. And I'm at Nick Palmashano on Instagram, YouTube, and at Ranger underscore up on Twitter, where I basically just post the same video every day. Thanks guys, Chris, thanks so much for being thanks on. For I really me. enjoyed it. Appreciate it. I think it's an iPhone. It Not one hundred percent sure. <laughs> oh, oh, that was dope. Yeah. Put that on the intro.